I was uh, talking to a friend of mine this week, and I, I told him that you know, I was prepping for preaching and told him we were preaching a sermon series uh, in the book of Acts. And, um, you know, he kind of laughed and, you know, I had already been laughing and I wanted to know why he was laughing because I was laughing because, you know, we've been in the book of Acts for a little while. He's from uh, a church, he serves at a church, um, um, a covenant church in Detroit called Citadel and he's going back to serve there and he he said, uh, you know, when we planted Citadel, Pastor Carey uh, opened with a sermon series on the book of Acts. I said, no, I didn't know. He said, uh, the sermon series was four years long. <laughs> I just kind of looked at him and said, we're right on track then. You know? um, I, I told the people at 930 that uh, what we do in our, in our staff meetings, the pastors, we, we sit down and we say, well, you know, we've, we've taken a lot of time over the last couple of weeks, so we need to kind of speed up a little bit. So, you know, it's Michael's responsibility to just kind of... <laughs> preach the next 100 verses. Um, and fortunately, <clears throat> I don't have to do that. Sandra's going to do that next week. I can just preach 23. Uh, so we'll, we'll look at Acts chapter 10 in a little bit. Um, but before we get there, I want to I say to you, um, for both of you who are new and, and, and you're uh, coming here maybe for the first time, maybe after a couple of times, and for those of you who have been with us in this sermon series for, the, for a length of time, that what we see the church doing in Acts is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. The church follows through with what it sees Jesus doing. And, and, and Jesus in the beginning of Acts, uh, in Acts 1 and 8, which is a foundational passage that we've talked about for this series and for the book, Jesus says, and you will receive power to be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so what we see happening in the book of Acts is the church living into those instructions, following those instructions. The church in Acts is trying to uh, do what Jesus told them they would do and be who Jesus told them they would be. But the church is continuing the work of Christ. And so before we launch into Acts 10, I'd like us to look at a couple passages where we see Jesus' ministry. And, and what I want you to look for is how Jesus is um, expanding the borders, if you will, or how Jesus is pushing at the boundaries uh, for his ministry. I think we'll see it in Acts 10, but it's important that we see it uh, beginning in Luke's first volume in the Gospel of Luke. So... Let's look at Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 23. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is Jesus speaking. Because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words, at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. This passage in Luke is where Jesus opens his public preaching and teaching ministry. He's in the synagogue and he, in giving the mission for his ministry, goes back to Isaiah and says that the Spirit has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. And he begins to talk to them about what his ministry will be. And he uses words like the blind, the poor, the oppressed, and and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And right away, Jesus begins to set the borders for what his ministry of preaching the kingdom of God will be about. He opens his preaching and teaching ministry by saying, I am anointed 
to proclaim the year of God's favor, to make sure that the poor hear the gospel, to make sure that the blind receive their sight, to release the oppressed. Luke chapter 5, verses 26 to 32. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. After after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, what I want to say about this passage is not only does Jesus sort of set the boundaries for his ministry by talking about the year of the Lord's favor, but when Jesus gets to the part of his ministry where he is inviting other people to lead with him, to serve alongside him, he goes and gets a Levi. And you need to know, if you don't, that tax collectors like Levi are fundamentally traitors to the race. Because when they collect taxes, there's no governmental oversight. There's no, uh, nobody reining in what they collect. And what happens is tax collectors in general take more taxes and pocket money. And they take taxes from the people of Israel. And so when the people of Israel see Jesus calling a Levi to be a part of his leadership, some questions are raised. And Jesus is saying right away, not only what his preaching and teaching ministry is about, but he's also saying, I use people in my ministry to take my message who are otherwise unusable, who are socially often unacceptable. He's pushing the boundary, not only of what the message is, the proclamation of the Lord's favor, recovery of sight to the blind, but he's pushing the boundary of who gets to tell that message. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this. It's interesting that, I'm sorry, this is not in the text, but, but uh, the centurion's servant, the centurion sends the elders, the Jewish elders, to go and get Jesus to bring Jesus back to heal the centurion's servant. And the elders talk about how deserving this man is. He says, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. And has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and this one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. 
and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. I I, want to say about this, maybe two things now, because... You, you have the religious leaders going to get Jesus and Jesus going with the religious leaders. And I wonder if Jesus is thinking, they think I'm coming for one thing, but I'm going for another. Because part of what the religious leaders are trying to get Jesus to do is heal this servant. But this is an opportunity for Jesus to say, to, to say not only is this about healing, but I want to show you something about the gospel. I want to show you that the reach of the gospel moves outside of Israel and it's not necessarily about what you deserve or how well you live. Jesus was amazed at him and turning to the crowd, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Palestine is occupied And the centurion's servant is being healed and reached by the message of the gospel. Luke 9, verses 51 to 56, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent his messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. The Samaritan village was a village of um, mixed people. They were, they were half Jewish. And the disciples, when the Samaritans don't receive Jesus' ministry, say, well, Jesus, let's, let's just kind of call fire down. And all Jesus does here that we, that we observe is he rebukes them, he corrects his disciples, and they move on. And in that rebuke, in that correction, is something that I think we see expanding in the book of Acts. We see the gospel moving uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, in Luke. We see the work of God moving uh, and, and Jesus expanding these boundaries of Judaism. And the church continues that expansion. The church moves from that smaller number of 120 in the upper room in Acts 1 to the large crowds of people at Pentecost participating in that celebration to the groups and throngs of people who are moving throughout the cities taking the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And what happens in Acts is we see the church taking the gospel, moving with the expanding, boundless gospel across people groups and lands and geography. When we come to Acts chapter 10, we encounter visions. Cornelius has a vision. Peter has visions. Our worship team read the passage for us. And and the first thing I want to say about these visions in the book of Acts is that the visions confirm the wideness of the gospel. The visions confirm how wide the gospel is. Can I say to you that when the message of Jesus is restricted, uh, the message of Jesus is changed? If Jesus is about uh, the recovery of sight to the blind, if Jesus is about the freedom of oppressed, incarcerated people, if the ministry of Jesus is about the proclamation of Jubilee or the year of the Lord's favor, if that is a part of Jesus' ministry and we restrict that ministry to the spiritually blind, to the spiritually oppressed, then we are restricting the message of the gospel and changing the message of the gospel. 
these visions confirm the wideness of the gospel. Let me read a quote from Dave Olson for you. Dave Olson is an executive minister in the covenant, and he's also author of The American Church in Crisis. He's summing up a particular chapter when he says, the gospel is for all people. Whenever the focus of the church bends toward the wealthy, the well-educated, can you put this up, Valerie, if you have that? Whenever the focus of the church bends toward the wealthy, the well-educated, and the properly scrubbed, I feel concerned. This pattern is a potent indicator of the captivity of American Christianity to our culture. Listen, Christianity has an amazing ability to connect with a great variety of cultures, whether rich or poor, educated or uneducated, liberal or conservative. I've learned at New Community that when I want you to talk back to me, I need to ask you explicitly to talk back to me. So, talk to me. What do you think of this quote? Whoa, y'all waiting, one at a time. Liberating. liberating, okay, what else? Hey, Emmy, where you been? I, I mean, okay, I just, I just, you know, sometimes I don't see people. And then, okay, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Anyway, I'm embarrassing everybody today. I'm sorry, I'm happy to see you. Welcome, yes. Go ahead, you were saying. Christianity cannot become others. What do you What do you think? Makes me wonder who we're leaving out now. Other thoughts. Exciting. Indicting. Indicting. Mm. points the finger he said at all the prejudices we're harboring that we might not even know a couple others what do you think about this yes brother speak up use your preaching voice if you have one we have a mindset of capitalistic Christianity the rich profit we have a mindset of capitalistic Christianity the rich profit anybody else one more Tom Two more, okay. Tom. I think it's a catalyst uh, for change in the uh, old institutions by the institutions that I came from, Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Catalyst for change this, um, from the old institutions out of which we've come. Last one, brother. They can't, they can't hear you. My wife, she can't hear you. And she's all the way over. She's saying I can't hear. So. Still can't hear you. Come on, just one more time. There you go. We can't focus the issues in the American church on or from out of those that come from a small, I'll say sect group of that church, this church. Immediately after this account, after Acts 10, we see the church responding. We see the church hearing about these visions and hearing about what God is doing and responding by forming a Gentile community, a, gen- a church for Gentiles. And, 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 and the, the gathered church in the first century responds by the formation of that church. And my question for us, for new community is, when we hear about the work of God, when we, when we encounter scripture and see that God is at work giving visions to people like Cornelius and Peter, how is it that we respond today? And the question that I think uh, uh, we ought to at least press and, and, and ask is, first of all, who is coming to our church? 
and why we're coming. Now, we're under no illusions. We know that everybody doesn't come to new community, and that's not the idea. The idea is to ask the question. And the other question, or the other set of questions is, who is not coming, and why aren't they coming? Because if the gospel is wide in its scope, and if the message of Jesus, if the message of the kingdom of God is wide and embracing and powerful enough to reach you, to reach me, no matter what our differences, no matter where we come from, we have to know whether or not as a church we are restricting the gospel and changing the gospel and trying to suggest that the gospel is in this box. And if you don't fit this box... You don't fit this church. I was talking to a young lady uh, two or three weeks ago from, from our congregation, and she, she asked me if New Community was um, a church where she could, ten- could continue to be at. And, uh, of course, I asked her what she meant. We were talking and she got into um, how she has beliefs that are, that are liberal. And, and these were her words. And, and that there are folks in our church who think conservatively. And, and I'm concerned that I would be judged. That I, you know, this wouldn't be a place for me to be me with my beliefs. And so she asked me. She said, is this a place where I can be? And I told her what I am going to tell you this morning. I said to her that our church has to be the kind of place where you with your liberal beliefs and you with your conservative beliefs are brought into relationship with one another and not only do we talk but we relate to one another in ways that challenge what Christ's claim is for our lives so that if you are a conservative thinker and I'm a liberal thinker the reason our church is here is so that we can relate to one another we didn't even get into what we mean by liberal and conservative. I mean, that we can go for days about. But, but, but the, the issue is when a church is diverse by any standard, you will always have people who see things differently. And do you know what that means? That means, one, that there is an opportunity for the wideness of the gospel to be on display. But it also means that you and I can't walk away in the midst of conflict. If we are here so that we can relate to each other, even though we come from very different places, you can't get so mad at me that you leave when I say something that you don't agree with. And I can't be so narrow that when you come with something that I think is off, that we don't engage each other. We are here to watch the work of the gospel between you with your beliefs and me with my beliefs. We are here so that we can experience that cross that levels all of us. The gospel is wide, having enough room for me with my stuff, with my beliefs and what I bring and you and your stuff and what you believe believe and what you bring. So the question, new community, is are we ready for this? Can we, can we see these visions, if you will, as opportunities for the gospel to grow in us as a church? The second thing I think about these visions is that they challenge the role of goodness versus the gospel. The Bible says that Cornelius was a good man. He was noble. He was God-fearing. He prayed. He was generous. He was a man of influence. But scripture says that there was, there was one mark, there was one critical defining mark that separated him from the earliest group of Christians. And that is that he was not Jewish. So no matter how much of the things he did, no matter how much of the person he was, generous, prayerful, respectful, he was still not 
something. He still missed one thing. He was not Jewish, which means in this context that he didn't obey their food laws and that he was not circumcised. He was a God-fearer, but he still did not get it completely right. And he was good, but he still missed it. And this missing element, this absent ethnic, religious, sort of cultural characteristic in Cornelius' life turns into an occasion where we get to see the gospel on display. He was an Italian soldier. He was a commander. Imagine a man who has all of the conflicts necessary to be both a military strategist and a God-fearer. What happens in his conversion can become a picture for us. Later on, Peter will talk about what happened in Cornelius' life. And Paul will teach about uh, the the flux that happens when the church is changing and, and accepting Gentiles. And what you have happening in this passage, what you have uh, igniting is, is a controversy because of transformation. Whenever there is a transformation, whenever there is a change, one of the emotional responses is flux. If that's an emotion. We, I work with the couples who are getting married in our church. We have a wedding uh, today, actually. And um, most of the couples who come through premarital counseling with me, is I, I do genograms with them. And a genogram, if you're not familiar, is kind of like a family tree. It's more of a family map. It has boxes and lines. And um, it comes out of family systems theory. And family systems theory, uh, one part of it says that whatever happens in one part, one unit of a system, will affect what happens in another part of the unit uh, or, or of the system. So that if there is an event that changes the unit, that that event, even though it's between certain relatives in the genogram, will affect other people in, um, in, the, in the family system. So, so what happens is, whenever there is a transformation or a change in the family, it will affect the rest of the family. And the same thing that happens in, in that way is happening in the church here in Acts. When the church changes, the church has to respond to the change. And we get to see uh, the the, 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 the role of the change in Peter's life and Cornelius's life and it looks like goodness versus gospel. Jesus has been about expanding the reach of the gospel but the old school converts who think the way they came to religious and f- religion and faith uh, extends to everybody else are at work here and, and, there's, and there's tension and there's friction. In our way, it's like me saying because I came out of a Bapti- black Baptist background that uh, became kind of Pentecostal um, if, 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 you, if you're a Christian, you have to do that too. Well, that's very different from, say, a white Anglican religious experience. Or very different from uh, a Latino Pentecostal experience. And so at the time, we suggest that the way we came to Christ is the only way Christ can come to you. We restrict the gospel and we get really, really religious. Peter and Cornelius cannot be any more different. He's a fisherman. Cornelius is a commander. Cornelius is Italian. Peter, Jewish. Look at uh, verse 3, Acts 10, verse 3. One day, at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. 
The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial before God. This language, the memorial before God, um, reminds me of those sacrifices in the Old Testament. There were, there were grain offerings, uh, sin offerings, burnt offerings, ceremonial offerings, all kinds of offerings, all kinds of uh, memorial offerings. And, and, and when you see a memorial mentioned in Scripture, uh, what is the, the idea behind that is that something is being remembered. Something is... Um, reminded of, something is being reminded of, or, or, or there is a memory. When it applies to Israel, uh, it refers to their remembering God's laws, or God's faithfulness, or God's covenant. When remembering applies to God in the Old Testament, it, it, it has to do with that which God is mindful of, or that which God pays attention to. So, so the angel comes and says, To Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial before God. He is not invisible to God. He is watched by God. One of my favorite ways of thinking personally about my life before God is that my life is before God. Sort of a twist um, from Zora Neale Hurston's title, Their Eyes Are Watching God, because God's eyes are, are watching me. And, and, and I think we hear the angel saying to Cornelius, God sees you. One Jewish writer said of repentance, great is repentance for it reaches to the throne of glory. Great is repentance for it makes the redemption by the Messiah come near. Proverbs eleven twenty three in the wisdom literature says the godly can look forward to a reward while the wicked can expect only judgment. Now, now what I think may be happening in Acts chapter 10 is we see a man who receives not what he earns, but what he looks forward to. I think Cornelius, in his prayers and his gifts, in him being a God-fearer, I think Cornelius is looking forward to something. And though he doesn't earn God's grace, he is looking for it. John Calvin, uh, who is a reformer who has had some influence on Christianity, says of this passage that man is prepared by the study of good works to receive the favor of God. He says that the quality of goodness that we see is owed to divine grace and God looks not to the righteousness of the individual but merely manifests the divine goodness towards miserable sinners. In other words, uh, what God does is God by grace gives us goodness. And then when God looks at us, God looks for the goodness that he gave us. Some of us, when we hear that God is watching, wake up and we say, I want God to see me. I expect that God uh, will Look at me and, on, and, and all the way on the end of, God, do you see how hard I'm living? Do you see how much I'm doing? Do you see how hard I'm trying? And we use our goodness, we use how we live and what we do as a way, as an attempt to try to control what God does. So when God doesn't answer our prayers, we get angry. Because we expect God to watch us. And we expect God to act like God is watching us. Then there are those of us 
all the way on the other end who have no clue that God pays attention. Can I ask you, what difference would it make to how you think and to how you live if you said to yourself, God notices me. God pays attention to me. Because in God's attention is God's grace. At some point, it has to matter what God sees. Not just your evaluators, not just your spouse, not just your children, not just your job. But what God sees and whether God gets joy, whether your life is a memorial. Goodness, it matters. It makes a difference. The angel says to Cornelius, it matters. Being good isn't bad, but then being good is not enough. So there's goodness, and then there's gospel. Being good is not enough because we tend to think that we can be good enough. And the gospel says that no matter how good you are, no matter what you do, there are some things that God has to give. No matter how many um, T's you cross, no matter how many things you check off your list, you still have to take God's grace as a gift. No matter how many skills and abilities and characteristics you have that describe you, there are some things you still have to receive. Sometimes uh, I talk to people and I use words that they don't understand. And you have to know as a pastor, I use words that come out of the Bible. Um, and I was talking to somebody the other week about, and I used the word grace. And I, I, was, I was paying close enough attention uh, and I asked, I said, are you, I asked this brother, I said, are you familiar with what I mean by grace? He had heard it, heard it before, but you know, there are words in the Christian dictionary that we use, and you just kind of pick it up, and it's part of the language. Nobody really tells you what it means. Hadn't known what it meant. So I said, what, what, what I mean in the context of our conversation, that grace was the gift that, that God gave that he could never himself earn. It was a gift that God gave. It, it, it is the thing that you need that God has to give. And we don't, we don't, we don't like accepting grace. Right? I mean, my, 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 my spiritual director says the same to me. You don't, you don't like to, you like to talk about it, but do you accept grace? Because accepting grace means that I have to experience my own conversion. There's another one of those words. Conversion is that humble posture where you bring your goodness to God's goodness and you say, God, I'm good, but your goodness is deeper. Your goodness is wider. Your goodness is larger. And as good as I am, you're better. Eventually, we see Cornelius and him converting. But, but in this passage, we get to see Peter experiencing another conversion as well. 
Peter is pulled into a deeper conversion. He gets a vision in the same town in Joppa where God has used him. You were here, if you were here last week, you heard about God using him to perform this miracle. He's in the same town and he has to experience a conversion because Peter's prejudice. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped by the gate. One commentator that I read said that this passage is about Peter's assumption that he knows what is clean and what is unclean. Peter is a leader and he's flawed. Um, he's, he's an apostle. And, and I think that the, Peter's flaw, his sin, I think Peter's attitude, I think Peter's behavior uh, toward um, Cornelius, toward his household, what he, the statements that he makes uh, when we get later into the, the chapter 10, I think I, I can be sympathetic to them because Peter, all of his preaching life, all of his ministry since Jesus was a part, has really uh, seen engagement with Jews. So Peter is doing what is familiar to him. He is doing what is common to him. And at the same time, I don't imagine he's getting up in the pulpit and saying, hey, everybody, hey, everybody, hey, everybody, I think God can convert Jews, but not Gentiles. I don't think Peter will say that. I think it's something that is going on in him. And I guess to us, the question would be, How are we paying attention to what God is saying when there are those small sins, those large sins that you don't tell anybody about? I mean, you know, we have things we tell our friends and we tell the church, and then there are those other things. And I think Peter's prejudicial treatment toward the Gentiles was one of those other things. And the Spirit says the same thing to him over and over. Three times he gets the same vision. These visions are confirmations of the wideness of the gospel. They challenge the role of goodness versus the gospel. And lastly, these visions are the work of the Holy Spirit. Luke repeats this theme of God's expanding ministry. We looked at the first gospel where Jesus is stretching the borders, moving the bounds of people who will receive the gospel, who will carry the gospel, who will embrace the gospel in all of its miraculous power. We see that happening in the gospel of Luke. We see that happening in the book of Acts. It happens at Pentecost. It happens in chapter three. It happens in chapter six when the church says, deacons, you're gonna serve outside of the general cultural framework. It happens here in chapter 10. And Luke is saying that the Holy Spirit is pointing us to this, giving us the same vision again and again and again. And Luke is reminding his audience, reminding us that who we think the gospel reaches is almost always too small. And it's almost always bounded by our own junk. 
And the Holy Spirit comes along and gives us something to see. Gives us a vision. Gives us an imagination for what we just can't get used to. If, if God's Spirit does not empower what we do, we, we can get along for a time in our gifts. We can get along for a time with our own goodness because we are good, because we have abilities. We can get along for a while. But, but if God's Spirit doesn't empower what we do, if the work of the Holy Spirit is in the engine behind how you live, you will get tired, you will fall, And you will eventually die because you cannot sustain what only God can give. The early church, Barney, come on back. The early church had a way of talking about the Holy Spirit in the Apostles' Creed. Said that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. In this text, Cornelius doesn't create a vision. Peter doesn't conjure up these visions. The Holy Spirit initiates this work and God who initiates these visions carries through the conversion for these men, for these people, for the Gentile community that is formed. The same spirit that starts these visions completes it, takes it through the junk, the controversy of transformation. Whatever change happens for Peter and Cornelius, God brings it about. And I want to say to some of you, some of you need to pray this morning. And and, and we're going to open up the the time in the front for you to come down and do that. Some of you feel, feel a little bit like Peter because you, frankly, are looking and you're saying, well, I'm not really sure if God can reach this person, this, this people. I'm not sure God can do this because all I've seen is what I've seen. Can you pray this morning that God would expand your vision? That God would give you something to see called the gospel where you, where you, where you see God working outside of your normal. Some of you, beloved, are here and you're a little like Cornelius. You, you're good. You have it together. But you sense something missing. Can you pray that God would include you in the wide gospel. Can you seek transformation? Can you seek to be changed? Not by your goodness, but by God's grace. I'm going to invite you to come and pray. In a moment, the worship team is going to lead us. When I was growing up, we, we used to uh, sing, I don't know if it, I guess it's a long meter, a long meter hymn. It's not quite a short meter hymn. Uh, and we, we sing it in our church sometimes in a different way. But, but I, want, I want to invite you to sing this prayer and then to come and just to have a few moments of prayer. If you know this, sing this. Let's do it without the keys, Barnabas. Sing it. I need the all. I need thee. If you know it, sing it. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now. Savior, I come to Thee. 
sing it when you know it. Sing it, make parts. I need the I need thee every hour, every hour, I need thee. Come on, church, sing, oh, bless, oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come, I come to thee. One more time, sing, I need thee. I need thee, oh, sing it on your own. I need thee every hour. this your prayer. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to If you need to come and pray, come on up. Come on up and pray. Come on up. Spend time. Spend time praying. Let's pray. Lord, you are our Savior and we bless you. We thank you for your heart, for your love that endures forever. As we go, would you go before us and make sure today, make sure this week, Make sure, God, that we encounter you. That in our living and in our being, in our going, in our doing, we would see your grace. We would experience your presence. And we would be changed. In the name of Jesus. Amen. New community. Have a wonderful week. Have a happy Memorial Day. I need to ask. We, I think we need a couple of folks to help us tear down. Um, so if you can help us tear down, if you've turned down before, you kind of know the ropes. Come on up and uh, help us. Just two or three folks. Everybody else, have a great day. Take care.